Anyway, we are uh, looking at selected psalms, and this week we are in Psalm 23, that most endearing of psalms. Open your Bible, navigate on your device to Psalm 23. The topic, you need not fear even when you find you are in the valley of the shadow of death. The title of our message, Are You Reeling in the Fears? I was commenting at the other day that it seems like my generation, generally those of us who are a little bit older, we reach way back in history and know all of these references. I mean, through, you know, 20s, the 30s, all the way through. The younger generation doesn't even know what happened 10 years ago. And so they don't know, they've never heard of Steely Dan, right? Reeling in the years. I mean, come on, get with it. As usual, I learn these things so you don't have to. But anyway, anyway, that's a very profound use of that title. But anyway, uh, that's our title, and let's, let's pray. Father, thanks so much. We like to poke a little fun, Lord, and, and bring humor into our situation. Uh, I see you doing that with your disciples, Lord, and uh, just the joy with which you approach life. At the same time, we're here to study your word. We pray, Lord, that it would... Uh, peer deep into our hearts, and that as we take a look at this really endearing psalm that most of us, I'm sure, could recite from memory, that we would not do anything to harm our understanding of it, but only uh, augment what is so beautiful already. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Call of the Wild is the big movie release this weekend. It'll be uh, well attended because it's featuring Harrison Ford in the main role. By the way, and this is true, they're making a fifth Indiana Jones movie with Harrison Ford. And in this movie, he is the relic that they're seeking. (laughs) Part of that is true. Yeah, they are making the movie, but man, I don't know. So Call of the Wild, the real star, the one who Jack London's story is about, would be the dog, Buck. Now, in this case, I hear that it's an all-CGI dog uh, because they do cruel and terrible things to it that they couldn't get away with, and you wouldn't want them to, to a real dog. Buck is sold without his his owner's knowledge. He gets increasingly feral as he is constantly abused and forced to fight for his survival in the wild. Enter John Thornton, whose care for Buck leads him to love and become devoted to him. Buck learns to trust man again. Psalm 23 talks not about dogs, obviously, but about sheep. One commentator titled it, A Sheep Looks at the Shepherd. In this psalm, the sheep learn that they can completely trust the shepherd to provide all their needs and protect them. The Bible identifies Jesus figuratively as the good shepherd, and the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus identified himself saying, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. In the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 20, that writer says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. And then the apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 4, calls his Lord the chief shepherd. It's not uncommon for pastors to teach Psalm 22 as the Good Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23 as the Great Shepherd Psalm, and then Psalm 24 as the Chief Shepherd Psalm. That Jesus is trustworthy to shepherd his sheep is beyond dispute. 
The question we each must face is this, do I trust my shepherd at all times? And the honest answer I think is no. We can therefore approach Psalm 23 as a sheep learning to completely trust their good, great, and chief shepherd. One more introductory detail, something that can be overlooked. Psalm 23 may introduce a second figure besides the shepherd. In verses five and six, some see the figure of a household and its hospitality rather than a shepherd with his flock. In light of all this, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you must learn to trust your trustworthy shepherd. And number two, you must learn to trust your trustworthy servant. Let's take a look at the shepherd in verses one through four. Trust is something that must be temp, uh, t- tested, right? I was trying to think of that. I blew that. I would blow all these moments, but anyway. Trust is something that needs to be tested. We can't know if we trust the Lord until we're in a circumstance where we must trust the Lord. The kind of trust I have in mind is the kind Asaph came to in Psalm 73. It's that famous Psalm where Asaph, probably recovering from a heart attack or some kind of a heart episode, could not accept that the wicked prosper while he, God's faithful servant for decades, was suffering. But by the end of the psalm, nothing has changed except his understanding, and he proclaims in the last verse, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. What he's saying is that he was forced to draw near to God because of his circumstances, and it was a good thing because he learned that he could trust his trustworthy shepherd no matter what the circumstances were. He struggled in his pain, but he sought the Lord and he came to a place of joy. And so verse one of Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now there's a book you should read. Many of you I'm sure have read it already. It's by Philip Keller. It's titled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's an enduring, endearing, modern classic from his own experiences as a shepherd in I think Africa, Keller explains each element of Psalm 23 as they relate to actual shepherding, and then he makes spiritual connections and applications. So uh, make it a point to read. It's not a hard read. Uh, You can get through it pretty quickly. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23. Now, I don't want to simply rehearse what Keller said. He, He already said it, and he said it brilliantly. I want to stick to this theme of our learning to completely trust the shepherd. One reason it's important is because right here in the first verse, we're challenged by the words, I shall not want. Is that true of you? Do you never want for anything? While we're contemplating that, look at two other declarations in the psalm. David goes on to describe still waters. Yet do we not often find ourselves in the storms of life? Does the Bible not talk about storms? Likewise, the green pastures are often brown or weed-filled. I think you get the idea. It can't just be wishful thinking, this psalm, or some sort of positive confession. Uh, As Asaph initially thought, the grass can be greener on the other side. I shall not want, Albert Barnes suggests, is the main idea in this entire psalm. There are at least two ways commentators approach these words. The pulpit commentary, trying to be honest, says David was experiencing a time of rest and refreshment, of prosperity and abundance. His thoughts are happy thoughts. He lacks nothing. He has no fear. God's mercy and goodness are with him. He feels assured that they will continue with him all the days of his life. He has but one desire for the future, and that is to dwell in the house of God, in the presence of God forever. 
And so the pulpit commentary looks at this and they solve what is the problem of when this is true by saying, well, this is a psalm for prosperity. David was writing in his prosperity and therefore all these things were true. The problem with that is that we know in our hearts as believers that this is a psalm for adversity. And indeed, uh, I think we think of it mostly in times of adversity. It's applicable to prosperity. We should, if, if everything's going great, moving along, we should be able to proclaim this psalm. But it's really the thing that we go to, maybe one of the key psalms we go to when things are falling apart, when we're in the storms, when the grass is brown, when we are wanting and grieving. I find it helpful to see Jesus reciting this psalm and receiving its comfort. As we suggested in our study on Psalm 22, on the cross, Jesus may have recited Psalm 22 all the way through Psalm 31, verse 5. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 31, 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. And so Jesus begins with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his last declaration from the cross was into your hand I commit my spirit. So many, many commentators and historians believe that he said, recited all of those psalms. It wouldn't have been unusual for him to do that to a Jewish audience. And I've suggested that he probably sung because they were put to music and they were meant to be sung. Uh, We wouldn't normally recite a song. We would normally sing it. And as far as his personal strength... Uh, you know, crucifixion wears on you. And, and, uh, but at the end of his time on the cross, it says that he spoke with a loud voice. And so Jesus had remarkable control, not over his suffering, but over his boldness on the cross. And so we can briefly think of his passion and hear Jesus singing this shepherd's song. Its claims were true for him on the cross. As a man dying for the sins of the world, he completely trusted his father to shepherd him through this valley of the shadow of death. If ever there was a valley of the shadow of death, it was Jesus' death on the cross. He could fear no evil, even surrounded by sinister supernatural enemies. And so on the cross, not only was he derided by men, but we saw that in Psalm 22, he was surrounded by spiritual foes, Satan and all of those kinds of spiritual beings, principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this world. But Jesus said, I'm trusting you. I fear not their evil because he knew where God was leading him. And plus, just as Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Psalm 22 on the cross and afterwards, he was fulfilling his own role as the great shepherd, giving his life for the sheep. There was nothing unusual about him dying on the cross. It was his mission. God the Father would supply him with the grace he needed to complete his task. How is it that I shall not want? Well, as the good shepherd, Jesus would take the place of his sheep and be led to the slaughter. Three days later, he arose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. On the day of Pentecost, he sent upon his gathered followers, his flock, the promise of the Father. He sent God, the Holy Spirit, who now permanently indwells all those who believe in him and all those throughout the age who will believe in their testimony. Since he was not spared, but delivered up for us all, we can be sure we will not want. And that word can mean lack anything we need to endure or enjoy our actual circumstances, whether they be blessings or buffetings. And so it's not that everything I want, I get. It's that I don't lack anything that I need. And that may seem a bad trade-off, but it's really not. Uh, I don't even know what I want. One day I want a Maserati. One day I want a Ferrari. 
those kinds of things. I don't even know what I want spiritually. I have to leave that to the Lord. But I, I, it, no matter where I am or what I'm doing, I have no lack spiritually. And that is a tremendous comfort when you find yourself in some trial or difficulty. You know that God has uh, allowed it or brought you there in order to test your trust and that you will not lack. Verse two, so he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters. Food and water, key needs of a flock. It's the job of the shepherd to provide them. We're looking at these words from a new covenant relationship with God and we know our food is the word of God. We further have the indwelling Holy Spirit as living water. Now, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be like torrents of living water. He didn't say it would be still water. But that's not a problem. It's just different ways of looking at the same thing. Still means deep. When a water is still, it means that it's deep. And that indicates the Holy Spirit is inexhaustible. And we know that the Holy Spirit is a torrent of water. And so we would say of the spirit that indwells us and empowers us, he is pre presented to us in scripture as an inexhaustible torrent of living water flowing through us. And so that's the possibility. And the fact is, we're told that we have all the spiritual resources we require at any particular moment for living out a godly life in any circumstances. We're promised by the Apostle Paul that Jesus has, and I quote, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's from Ephesians chapter one, verse three. He doesn't list them. The idea is that if you need some spiritual resource, it's available to you. Whatever you're going through, wherever you find yourself, it's available to you. Listening again to the Apostle Peter, he promises, I quote, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, or I like to say living a godly life, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that you may be partakers of the divine nature. And so Peter packs a bunch of stuff in there. You have the divine nature, the Holy Spirit to live the godly life. It's his one statement self-help book. That's all that you need. Our problem seems to be that we won't believe that God has truly enabled us to walk with him. If we did, there'd be a lot fewer Christian books and conferences. You can tell I'm not a big fan of the how-to books when it comes to walking with Jesus. I, I don't want to crush anybody who's been helped by some of these books. Uh, but just hear me out philosophically that can get in the way of simply believing and obeying. The Apostle Peter, he literally says, guys, everything you need, you have. And it comes to you because now you have the divine nature if you've been born again and the Holy Spirit living within you. And guess what? Paul says the same thing. Any resource that you want, you can have. And so why don't you just believe that instead of saying, well, that can't be right. That's too easy. I need to uh, do something I, I, besides believe. How did you get saved? Did, did, you get, did you do something besides believe? No. And that's the problem with the world's religions and other philosophies and psychologies. They want you to do something to better yourself. You got saved when you believed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how you live the Christian life as well. And so when I'm overwhelmed and I'm being crushed, I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is sufficient and that there are resources spiritually to get me through that valley of death. 
and into the pastures that the Lord is calling me to. At this year's Beloved's Banquet, I shared from the most romantic book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Here's what he said. For the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who's going to go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Imagine saying this to the Old Testament Jews under the law who didn't have the indwelling of the spirit, just the presence of the spirit in their lives. And yet the writer says, you can do everything that God has asked you to do. He will empower you to do it. The way of obedience wasn't to be found by some journey to heaven or across the sea or some radical discovery from holy men or holy women. It was and it is present with us as believers. He that has begun this work and you will complete it. Having begun in the spirit, we're not made perfect in the flesh. We can be, uh, be full in the famine. We can be still in the storm. Our good, great, and chief shepherd has provided all that we need. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon ordered everyone in his kingdom to bow down to his golden image. Three young Jews, captives from their teens, boldly refused. They uttered one of the greatest expressions of trust spoken in the Bible. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to talk about this anymore. Wow. You know anything about Nebuchadnezzar? He just as soon kill you as look at you. I mean, he was a potentate with a lot of problems. And so these three boys, they said, hey, um, we're not going to talk to you anymore. We might be thrown into the blazing furnace, but the God we serve is able to bring us out of it alive. He will save us from your powerful hand. But we want you to know this. Even if we knew that God wouldn't save us, we still wouldn't serve your gods. We wouldn't worship the gold statue you set up. Talk about drawing a line in the sand. That's like a pit. I mean, we're standing here. You can do whatever you want to us. The king had them thrown into a furnace that had been heated seven times greater than it normally was. It was so hot on the approach, the men charged with throwing them into it were burned to death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were seen walking safely in the furnace. A fourth person was with them of whom the king said, the form is like the son of God. That's trust. That's Bible trust. It was the original fiery trial. The apostle Peter said of our trials, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And so my trial, uh, I don't know if Peter had Daniel in mind, in uh, that episode, but my trial, it's a fiery trial. I'm, I'm in the furnace. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I might burn up in that furnace, but I don't really care. There's going to be a fourth person in there with me. That fourth person is Jesus. And as long as I'm with him, I'm fine. We're going to partake of his sufferings and we can do it through his word and his spirit empowering and enabling us. Verse three, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Don't you love those restoration shows where they take garbage and make it brand new? They're, it's fantastic. Never seen them restore a soul. I know I'm quoting quite a bit, but hey, if someone says it better, why not? You know, television, sometimes they have clip shows. They, 
I remember that whenever the writers go on strike, they have clip shows where they just show clips of previous episodes. Some of them are pretty cool. Maybe I'll do a clip sermon one time. Just put everything together. I say the same thing every week anyway. But anyway, if somebody says something better, why not use the quote? But it also keeps me from plagiarizing. You know how hard it is to not plagiarize with the internet now? You find something, you think, I, I couldn't say this any better. And then, well, I better though, because, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to get in trouble. Lots of times I, try, I find, it's a hobby of mine to find when people are plagiarizing. Here's how you do it. I shouldn't tell you this, but take something that they've written that seems a little odd for them and, and search for it in quotation marks. And then it will come up on other websites where the same words are used. I catch Calvary guys all the time. And you'll probably catch me now, but who has time to do that? This guy. I only work, only work a couple hours a week on Sunday, so I have to find something else to do. So I'm in the middle of quoting Albert Barnes, who says, the word soul here means life or spirit and not the soul in the strict sense in which the term is used now. It refers to the spirit when exhausted, when it's weary or sad. And the meaning is that God quickens or vivifies the spirit when thus exhausted. That's the word of the week right now, vivify. A great word. These old guys really know how to talk. The reference is not to the soul backsliding, but to the life of the spirit as exhausted, weary, troubled, anxious, worn down with care and toil. He brings back its vigor. And we talk about burnout. Actually, burnout is just so you know, as a, as a top, as a title, isn't used in clinical circles anymore because it means too many things. And so, but we talk about spiritual burnout. Everybody you know, seems to, every few years, people seem to go through a thing where burnout is the expression and pastors go on sabbaticals and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I've always kind of made fun of that. Uh, I'm not, not to the point where I understand, I mean, people get depressed. People get stressed out. Paul the Apostle, he said, I got the care of the churches. I got all this other stuff stressing me out. Even though he said, be anxious for nothing, he was pretty anxious a lot of times. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, one of the most depressed guys ever. Fits of depression would come over him and he'd just start crying uncontrollably. So I understand there's pain and there's, I'm not saying there isn't. What I'm saying when I say you can't really burn out is that you're looking to the wrong source to vivify. What you really need is to refill yourself at the inexhaustible uh, source, which is God, the Holy Spirit. And and burnout is sometimes... uh, letting you know that you're doing things in the energy of the flesh, maybe even things you're not supposed to be doing because you can't burn up the fuel that you get from the Holy Spirit. And so just keep that in mind. Make sure you fuel appropriately. For example, a few years ago, well, actually a little over a year ago, there was a viral video of a woman at a gas station trying to figure out how to fill up her Tesla. So, you know, there's gasoline, there's diesel, there's propane, there's electricity. They don't mix. You you can't run a Tesla on diesel. You can't run your gas engine on diesel and vice versa. You have to get the right fuel. I think a lot of times Christians are sputtering or they're pulled over to the side of the road because they're looking to the wrong source. They're looking to a worldly source, a Christian source that that is legalistic or a non-Christian source, which is even worse. And you're going to sputter. You can only look to the source of the fuel that you actually work on. and That is the Holy Spirit. And so bear that in mind. 
you must refuel by relying on the promised Holy Spirit. It's the only fuel by which Jesus can lead you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. You can't live the Christian life any other way. Verse four, yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Perhaps no words in human history have brought so much comfort and joy to the hearts of believers as they approach death. The truth of the good, great, and chief shepherd receiving you into heaven is priceless and timeless, full of grace and mercy. This word shadow is applicable to any path of gloom or sadness, any scene of trouble or sorrow, any dark and dangerous way. It's therefore applicable not merely to death itself, though it encompasses that, but to any or all the dark, dangerous, and gloomy paths which we tread in life, to ways of sadness and solitude and sorrow. All along those paths, God will be a safe and certain guide. Pretty sure I plagiarized that, now that I'm reading it, but anyway. Remember the No Fear campaign? Sure, it was a shirt company, I think, and they said no fear. Believers are the original fear nots. The words fear not or do not fear occur over uh, about a hundred times in the Bible. So obviously you do fear, and then God says, but you don't need to if you trust me, and I will teach you how to not fear if you will trust me. When I fear, I need to believe two things, that my shepherd is with me and that his implements comfort me. The one who experienced Gethsemane for me is with me in my darkest times. I don't want to go into the masterful ways a shepherd uses his rod and staff. For our purposes today, they represent the resources that the shepherd has in order to protect and provide for us. They don't seem like much, right? I mean, those are the only resources David mentions. He obviously had a sling and he was really good with that. But he says, I only need the rod and the staff. And yet David, as a young boy, a teenager, watching the flock out in the wilderness, said, I had to kill a bear. I had to kill a lion. And there were other enemies out there. And, and, and yet what he had in hand was enough. I would have wanted a shotgun or, you know, some kind of something more than that. You mean you're sending me out against a bear? Not gentle Ben. I mean, you know, a real. And these mountain lions. Man, they're nasty, you know. You don't hear them until it's too late. He says, no, that's all I need. I just need a rod and a staff. I can take care of the sheep plenty. I'll kill them. Not a problem. And so the Lord, whatever resources you need, they, they, I think sometimes we think, you know, well, I'll pray about it, and it somehow seems puny. Uh, I'll pray about it, but what I really need is what this professional has to offer me over here, where I do this, you know, chant this mantra, or I do this whatever and stuff, and I start to feel better. Stick with the Lord. Death Valley days are frightening, can be so dark you can't see to move. I don't like those caverns where they shut the lights off, you know what I mean? It's freaky. What if you've got some crazy docent who just, you know, turns the lights off and leaves, and then you're in there groping in the dark, living out some Tolkien fantasy, and Gollum comes and grabs you or whatever, but anyway... Believe that Jesus can never leave you or forsake you. He's been through Death Valley. Trust and obey. It may take time, but there's no other way. You've got to learn to trust your trustworthy servant as the uh, psalm closes. Certainly possible to see the next two verses as applying to the shepherd and his care for the sheep, but it seems more about Eastern hospitality. In that figure, the shepherd is also the servant of those he shelters in his household. 
So verse five, you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Table could relate to what we call table land. And the enemies could be those bears and wolves and lions. And it's true that shepherds do use oil on their sheep. But it seems when he's talking about anointing with oil and especially the cup that runs over, those are images drawn from receiving guests into your home. We're going to talk about hospitality in the biblical sense. And just as a point of reference, it is not entertaining. You can be great at entertaining, but not have a gift for hospitality. Let me give you an example. It's an extreme example, but it'll show you. When two angels came to destroy Sodom, Lot insisted they come within his house because he knew what was likely to happen and he wanted to protect them. The fact that they could protect themselves is not the point because he didn't know they were powerful spiritual beings. He thought they were just wanderers. When the men of Sodom came demanding that Lot surrender what they thought were two men, it becomes clear in their conversation that Lot is responsible for defending them at any cost. His solution was not godly, but it shows the lengths you must be willing to go to in order to uphold hospitality. You literally could involved dying to defend your guests. So yeah, it's not just entertaining. I love being entertained, but I don't expect you to die for me. But if I was in an Eastern situation, when you had somebody, you were responsible for them and you did anything you had to. The table represents fellowship, the household of the Lord of which you become a member when you are saved by grace. It's a place of fellowship with Jesus and with his people. And after all, we're looking forward to a table, are we not, called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You read about it at the end of Revelation. As long as we're in the world, we're surrounded by enemies, both worldly and otherworldly. One of the strategies of our enemies is to draw us away from the table the Lord sets to the seeming delicacies of the world. You know, everybody's on a diet of some sort. I'm not going to make fun of that. It's just a, a thing. Stick to your spiritual diet. Nothing offered by your enemies can nourish you. God's bread, milk, meat, and honey are more than sufficient for you. You don't need anything else. I find it strange, but it was the custom to pour oil over the head of your guests. I don't ever want you to do this to me. <laughs> Sometimes we anoint people with oil when we pray for them when they're sick, and they can't believe we're going to put a dab of oil on their Are you going to touch me with oil? Can you imagine just getting the Wesson and just, here we go. <laughs> hope you didn't like those clothes. Of course, people stunk in those days, and so it was better to smell olive oil than whatever they came in with. So I don't know. Just... But it becomes a symbol of being anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on us, as it were. Nobody wants an overflowing cup. You ever been someplace? They, you know, you've seen them, they just keep it going, and it's like, all right, you know, flow, and then you got to get towels, and it's a mess. This is talk, not talking about spillage. It's talking about a cup that cannot be exhausted. It's always full, no matter how deep you drink of it. The idea the psalmist seems to be trying to get across is that of abundance. Who remembers Mama Celeste on television? All right, three of us old timers. She sold frozen pizzas for those of you who are not culturally <laughs> literate. And at the end of each uh, uh, commercial, she would say, abundanza, abundant. I love Mama Celeste. If you drink the cup of the world, you're going to remain thirsty. Jesus has water that will go on quenching your thirst forever. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Have you ever been followed? Once you get the feeling you're being followed, you just keep looking back in almost a paranoid way. As a believer, you are being followed. Every time you look back, you'll see goodness and mercy. Goodness certainly includes the grace by which you were saved. Mercy is your constant companion as God continues to forgive and forgive and forgive and make you more like his son day by day. As far as the house of the Lord, you're in it now in this life and you'll be in it forever. Whether through death and resurrection or by rapture, we're in his household and we're going home. As the householder, Jesus serves you, not the way a genie does by granting wishes. No, he protects and he feeds and he follows. You're surrounded, that's true, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you completely trust Jesus? Not always, but you learn to. But in order to learn, you must be in circumstances where trust is tested.